You're listening to season one of Teaching Yoga, a podcast by me, Cora Giroux. I believe yoga teachers are on the front line of health and healing in the Western world, so I created this podcast to support the people that support the people. Each week, we cover topics that matter to you, like inclusivity, accessibility, and diversity, how to make a sustainable living doing this work, and how we as teachers can be a positive voice in the changing landscape of yoga. This show is a space for real, raw conversation, a place to remind you that you're not alone, and a resource for your life and work on the spiritual path. If you want to stay connected between shows, find me on Instagram. It's just my name, C-O-R-A-G-E-R-O-U-X. I haven't yet, yeah. We had to bet. I'm only here, yeah. You know, if you don't like this music, then don't be listening to it. You know, I'm just a dude that you know, or something similar. If you don't keep it real, can you? Welcome back to another episode of the Teaching Yoga podcast. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that as a yoga teacher, you've probably started teaching because practicing yoga changed your life in some way. Maybe it helped you heal chronic pain or illness, or maybe it just showed you a more skillful way to work with your mind. And because of those benefits, perhaps you felt compelled to learn more about yoga or you wanted to share it with others. So at some point, you enrolled in a teacher training and then began to teach. For most of us, myself included, we don't start teaching yoga as a means to start a business. However, as soon as you begin accepting money for teaching yoga, that's exactly what you've got. And in rare instances, you might be classified as as an employee, but for the vast majority of yoga teachers, we're either sole traders or independent contractors, at least for right now. So as a business owner... There are certain legal considerations that we need to have in place to make sure that we are clear and in integrity with our students, um, potential people that we collaborate with, and even fellow teachers. And like, did you know that even something as simple as having a website means that you should have legal consideration around your privacy policy, certain disclaimers, a cookies policy, and even like a terms of use section just for your website. If you did, don't judge me because those are things that um, don't come naturally to me. So wading into this legal side of owning a business is only something I became interested in after not having legal protection in place and sort of suffering the consequences. And I hope that doesn't happen to you. So if like me, um, perhaps you haven't spent as much time investing in um, having proper legal documents for your business, this episode is for you. So in today's show, I speak with Nidra. Nid began her working life as a dance teacher in the UK and then later qualified as a lawyer, a barrister, and a solicitor. She worked in-house for leading music and media companies as a technology music licensing specialist. So kind of like, you know, intellectual property. 
So in 2012, though, Nid suffered a head injury, and as part of her recovery, she established her first wellness business. So she stopped practicing law um, and moved into the wellness sector. After migrating to Australia in 2016, Nid created Spirit Law, which supports yoga teachers, healers, and mindfulness companies to grow their online business while protecting their rights. So why I was really excited to have Nid on the show is that not only does she have an extensive um, and quite an impressive legal background, but she also understands yoga and the wellness industry really well. And as you can um, hear in this interview, I'm just like, I marvel at the fact that there's a a human. I found a human that embodies both of those things. Um, the lawyers that I've worked with in the past have been excellent. However, it, it was quite a struggle to communicate sometimes about, you know, teaching yoga and teaching online and Instagram and email marketing and all of those sorts of things that we probably do as yoga teachers. Nid really understands that side of the business. So she's much more aware of what you need to take into account as a yoga teacher when it comes to protecting yourself legally. So um, in this episode, Nid and I discuss why yoga teachers need to protect themselves legally, especially online, how the law helps to reflect our values and uphold integrity in our working relationships. That really sort of helped me frame like, this is really just about integrity and relationships. And that made me feel like I could grasp it and like get more, way more buy-in. Um, we also talk about negotiating con contracts between yoga studios and yoga teachers. So whether you own a studio or whether you teach at a studio going or, you know, you're coming back to teaching at a studio um, in the last, you know, little while, uh, this would be something quite interesting to think about what your contract will be like with your studios and teachers. And if you've never signed a contract to teach at a studio like me, um, I think this is something we should really start implementing in the yoga community um, as brick and mortar studios start to reopen. We speak about why the inner work of our practice needs to be reflected in how we run our businesses, how to find a good lawyer, because like that's kind of challenging, um, and strategies for saving money when hiring a lawyer, because y'all know it ain't cheap. Um, why legal templates, or rather when legal templates might be enough, and when you actually just need to hire a professional. And we get into right at the end of the episode, like the legal considerations that even a basic website needs to have. Um, yeah. So it's, it's something that for me, it took me like learning the hard way to know and to realize that focusing on this type, uh, this aspect of the business is really important, but I, I hope it doesn't take you that long or going through something traumatic, um, to, to start to implement some of this in your business so that you can have something that's. Um, less risky and more sustainable going forward. Now, I do just want to say like a little disclaimer. Um, after recording this episode, I felt like I was really, during the interview, really heavily advocating for yoga teachers to work with a professional like NID um, rather than trying to do it themselves. I just want to point out that while I actually most likely will work with Nid, I've actually booked in for one of her free consults um, in the future just to get my online business up to snuff. Um, I'm not receiving a commission or a discount or anything like that for having Nid on the show. I'll just, you know, I'll pay the normal rates that, that she charges out for everyone. Um, and I know that some people might not be in a position to invest in legal advice, and I totally get that. So there are lots of ways that you can 
implement some of these strategies without breaking the bank. And I think that really comes down to, to working with templates. I've done that in the past as well. Um, I think I like the website I've used is like legal one, two, three. It sounds so like, like a scam, but it's not. They're an Australian company. NID also has templates that you can buy on her website as well. Um, so I just wanted to, to make a disclaimer. And I know that for me personally, when I find something overwhelming, I just tend to procrastinate on it. Um, so I've noticed that if I can hire someone, even if it does cost money, um, I actually will get the thing done. Like filing my tax, for example, um, having an accountant that I have a longstanding relationship with, even though it does cost money, it actually saves me money in the long run because I know um, where I'm at financially within my business so I can make smarter decisions. So I just wanted to put that out there that this is not like a paid thing, even though I'm like, oh my God, Nid, I'll just come work with you. That is probably what I will do, but just because of my personality, um, my situation and my priorities right now. So just FYI about that. Um, and if you are interested in talking to me one-on-one -on -one about your business, just a reminder that every single month we give away a 60 minute consultation with me. Um, and you can ask me anything about branding, about running an online business, about teaching yoga, um, running teacher trainings, which is something I have a lot of experience with, and I would be happy to break it all down for you. Um, but we draw a lucky winner, uh, every single month month on the podcast, all you need to do to go in the draw is subscribe to the show and then leave a review. Once you've left a review, just screenshot it and then send that to TL. Her email is support at coragiru.com. And then we just use like this, well, TL does it, but I don't even know exactly what it is, but it's like little random generator draw thing. And we draw out, um, a random person from the reviews and we select a winner. We'll announce it on the first podcast of the month, each and every month until the end of time. So I hope you enjoy the show. Even if the legal side of business is not something that you've spent a lot of time thinking about, I really think this episode with Nid will help convince you that that is important and then also make it a little bit more accessible to digest. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Nid, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to join you. I'm really excited about this conversation. And as we were just sort of chatting beforehand, there's, um, there's a lot in this conversation that I don't know. And one of the areas in my business that I find is one of my weak spots. So I personally, I'm really excited to like pick your brain about all of the things you know about yoga and the law and going online. But before we do any of that, could you just give us like a little bit of your background, um, the kind of work that you're doing now, and, and maybe even like how you got into the work that you're doing currently? Um, okay, so it's I kind of, it's hard to know how the best way to explain my background <laughs> is. Um, so um, I went to performing arts school. And when I left school, I was a dance teacher, and I mostly worked in, in, um, in uh, disabilities. Um, and, um, I, I had, um, quite bad depression at that time and a fortune teller said, oh, you should go study law. And in my desperation, I thought that's a great idea. So, um, I went off and I studied law and I found that I was really good at it. Um, and so after five years of teaching dance, I decided to become a lawyer and, um, 
the the fitness teacher and dancer in me really wanted to specialize in intellectual property and kind of the creative industries, so music licensing. And at that time, as I was training, um, was the change and shift online um, and digitization of the music industry. Um, and so I specialized in that for my master's and then that's what I did. I got a job at MySpace before Facebook launched and I worked in music licensing and protection of people being online and kind of social media and how were we all going to kind of go through this experience. And then, um, and then Facebook destroyed, uh, MySpace pretty much, (laughs) um, being a thing of our social media past. Um, so after making myself redundant, I moved into the newspaper industry, which was also struggling a lot with everyone moving online. And, um, and I used my music licensing skills, um, working in the newspaper industry, um, to do lots of first of new things, as well as the digitization moving into iPads and apps. Um, so my, my niche was very much that online transition um, of industries that had never had to go online and had never thought about how much of their money they should be paying for these things, you know, never done before commercial deals. So I always worked in companies doing very kind of cutting edge, weird stuff, um, <laughs> moving, moving online. And then um, seven years ago, I had a head injury um, and... Um, I had to stop working. And as part of my um, healing process, I'd already done yoga before my head injury and I'd done years of Pilates. Um, and my plan had always been that once I'd enjoyed my career as a lawyer, I would return to teaching um, and I would run retreats. And so I built my health up and returned to teaching and worked my way towards leaving the UK to running retreats. And as part of my healing process, I also founded a company in the UK and we ran pop-up classes in illegal rave sites in East London. Um, So we'd have people doing yoga amidst, you know, the smear of, smell of beer and stuff um and um and that grew and then we took that into retreats business and then because I was traveling doing retreats I also took it to online um doing kind of mostly private work because my schedule was a bit tricky for me to be able to do too much kind of group stuff um with the traveling as well and and then when I settled in Australia um just over a year and a half ago um I decided to sell that venture and um, focus on my business consulting that I had been doing all the while alongside my recovery, making use of those legal skills, but mostly for mindfulness companies, creatives and other wellness professionals. Um, So I've been working with cafes and retreat centers um, over the years, on and off, um, just as a bit of a a background gig, I guess, um, with just the different kind of questions. So a lot of them about growth, um, how to value their IP, how to learn different negotiation skills. Maybe they've not had commercial background, but their business is expanding. And how do they deal with more commercial people who maybe have slightly different values and ways of communicating than we do in the wellness industry? Wow. <laughs> I feel like you are like perfectly suited for this role more than anyone else I have ever um, met or spoken to. And I, and I have worked with like lawyers in the past for different things like, you know, immigration lawyers and um, recently a lawyer with um, some business stuff that I had going on. And I just feel like it's really nice to talk to someone who can speak both languages, right? Like the wellness language and also um that more legal or, or commercial side. It seems like okay. such a 
cool set of skills to have in one. <laughs> I've done I've done a lot of performance training, performance in performing arts school, performance as a teacher, and then performance as an advocate doing my barrister training to be called to the bar. So like I've done lots of, you know, how do you perform to different audiences? You know, like the professionalism of being completely impartial, being as inhuman as you can when you're a barrister, <laughs> to being like the most accessible open person when you're working with kids with autism. You know, it's like it's wow. <laughs> wow. So um yeah it's been it's been fun, I guess um being versatile and um and seeing things from different perspectives is very much in my nature I'm a classic Gemini in that respect Um, (laughs) I love I love that balance and seeing the bigger picture and seeing all of the different angles and viewpoints that we have Mm. so I've heard you speak before and kind of just like casually mentioned that the law is really about relationships and For people in the wellness sector, you know, most of the people who listen to the show are yoga teachers, if not, you know, other very similar professions who we, we live relationships, right? With our clients, with our students, with um, colleagues, with all sorts of different people that we interact with. And I think that that is a very familiar place for yoga teachers to rest, but maybe the law, not so much. So how is the law really about relationships? So from a from a ethics point of view, laws are drafted to help us in large societies with how we interact with one another. So they're there to re- reflect our values, our principles of how we socially agree to behave at a bigger scale. So some laws may be quite specific and quite regulated to protect people who may be in more vulnerable scenarios. And that we maybe think about like privacy laws, like they're there because we want to protect something that could be quite vulnerable and exposing to somebody from fraud and identity theft, um, as well as, you know, use of their image in a way that we don't want to use it. Um, But it's also about our relationships um, at home. You know, the laws are there to help us with marriage and childcare and, and what social care is there for is all there to help us with managing our relationships at home and in business it's no different we are doing contracts mostly um there are some other regulations around um, commerce but you're really looking at what is your relationship that you're having as a business and you know yoga teachers are no different they're a business and they're not outside of the business world they are making money Hmm. to live and buy stuff and pay for rent (laughs) Um, so you know unfortunately we are all commercial beings too Um, and that means that our relationships with our clients are our customers and you know we are governed by those rules of contract and all that we're trying to do in a business relationship is set out what we expect from each other and what we're promising one another that we're going to do and where there may be caveats about, oh, well, I'm not, I don't want to be so responsible for this thing. So you're going to be responsible for that. So it's about how we set out boundaries in a healthy relationship so that we can all be clear about what's expected so that we can all act with integrity and step up to the things that we've said we're going to do and be called to account when we don't do that. Yeah, that makes it seem so much more interesting (laughs) and so much more um, like aligned with what I think for most yoga practitioners and teachers, it's like what we're already about anyway. Like I don't see, uh, you know, many people objecting to that, to how the law 
um, helps to support our relationships in theory, right? It's like, oh yeah, that actually sounds like a really good um, way to conduct ourselves. But like just, you know, and I'm putting myself out there as like not having spent as much time on the legal side of my business as I think is probably necessary. So before we go any deeper into like details, could you explain a little bit, I know you have already, but like why it's important for yoga teachers to become educated on their legal responsibilities? Um, yeah. And then, yeah, I have more, but we'll start with that. <laughs> okay, let's start with that first one. So um the key thing, and I think it's triggered by everyone going online in particular, because it's harder for us to control our relationships. A lot more can get lost in those electronic transmissions than um, maybe we sometimes get when we're sharing physical space. Um, that's not for everybody. Some people are very good at reading energy even through computers. But for a lot of people, a lot's going to get lost in the communication. And there's a lot more automation, there's information flying over the internet. And so it's become more relevant, I guess, as a result of COVID, because more people have jumped online. And that is where I see it as, as becoming more of an issue. It doesn't undermine the fact that it is really important even in a studio scenario because it's still about our responsibility providing a service that affects somebody at a physical emotional and mental state that we are working with people to have those effects we have a responsibility that we need to uphold and we need to know what the laws are to protect our clients in those scenarios in terms of what we promise and how we promise things and as much as how we can ask for payment or what we offer in terms of the quality of our services and what recourse our clients have to say you're not offering and you're not meeting the quality that you're saying you are um, but also in our relationships as teachers to studios um, or studio owners between studio owners you know or, or collaborators we need to be clear about what we're creating, who's responsible for what, how the money flows, who's allowed to do what at what time and what constraints there may be at the end of the relationship and should the relationship go wrong. And this is always the horrible bit of any legal stuff is always the if the relationship goes wrong, what do you foresee as being fair outcomes for the different people involved, you know, and how do you agree what's going to be the fair outcome? And sometimes having those conversations with one another about what those outcomes are can show you that you're not aligned. And that can be a really good red flag at the yeah. beginning of a relationship. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I've learned um, that when, like, even when I've tried to um, have contracts with studios, for example, um, about, cause I used to run teacher trainings at different studios and just like who's responsible for marketing and who's responsible for handling payments. And like, just to, to like, define the relationship in writing and have us both agree to it just to have clarity, which is what I was thinking, just to make sure it's not like, oh, I thought you were doing that. Um, there's, for me, there's been a lot of like resistance to having other, from other people wanting to like have it all written down, um, like intense, sometimes intense resistance. And I now realize that that's a red flag. <laughs> so it was like, I was like, oh, what am I doing wrong that this person doesn't want to sign anything? Is what I'm asking them to sign really unfair or like something like I was looking at what it is. But yeah, since, you know, maturing a little bit in that process, I was like, oh, that could be a sign that that person may not be aligned with me or maybe um, 
really problematic to work with in and that's not to say that like if you're doing a collaboration say with someone you might not want to write everything out because you're both kind of co-creating and so that creation process is unfolding and so you don't necessarily have that clarity and at some point you might then be both like oh now's the time that we want to write it up but I think for the bog standard teaching scenario you know you need to get contracts from studios and negotiate that because we're generally self-employed and it if things go wrong, it's going to be in a small claims court. And so they're going to be like, well, what are the terms? So you want to have stuff in writing. And also you don't want to just accept what a studio says to you. You know, you want to read it and understand it. And if you don't understand, then talk to them and say, what do you mean by this? Because sometimes a studio will write something in a contract or, or they've got a lawyer to write it, right? And it will have something weird about like not teaching in a studio two miles near where their studio is, say. And you might be like, well, then I can't teach you know, where I live, that's ridiculous. I'm, I don't want to do that. Or you might be completely willing because you so desperately want to teach in that studio. But you can make that judgment call yourself by understanding what the restrictions are and does it align with the work that you want to do and what that studio is going to give you out of that relationship. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I've been teaching full-time for over a decade as a sole trader, an independent contractor, and have never once signed a contract with a studio. It's crazy, 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 crazy. There's, or there's even not that I haven't, yeah, not that I haven't even signed it. I've never been offered one to sign or I've never brought one either. Like, and just random. And I don't know if this is a, a straight answer, but like, should the studio be providing the contract or could an independent contractor provide their own contract for a studio? Like, is that, is that weird? Okay. So, I mean, like that, that's a, it's a, it's called the battle of the forms under contract law. It's a whole <laughs> principle, um, which is to do with whose contract are you under? So in a typical commercial scenario, both people turn up with their contract, right? So the studio gives a contract, teacher gives a contract and you go, whose contract do you sign? Whose terms are going to apply to the deal? And it kind of goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, right? Until you agree what's signed. So, you know, in theory, a teacher and a studio are of an equal bargaining position. You know, you are completely able, just as much as the studio, to get legal advice, to decide your own terms and what you're going to agree with the studio. Um, and therefore, you can negotiate your terms of contact with the studio. So you can say, I want this rate. I want to be paid by this, you know, this frequency. I don't want to be responsible for this, but I don't mind doing this. We all know in reality that there's a fair amount of competition for yoga teachers um, and getting work can be quite hard and getting work into the studios that you want to get into can be quite hard and you can be treated quite badly by some places because some places might have that approach of, well, there's another yoga teacher out there, right? So this is where really taking the time before you decide to get into a studio about your self-worth, your values, what kind of teacher are you, what do you want to bring is really important. So I guess in my mind, there's a lot of the self-work that we have to do in what we're teaching is also the self-work in our profession and how are we going to be the strongest and the safest that we can be so that when we decide where we're going to teach, it's aligned to us. And if there's little niggly things, you know, and there's always going to be niggly things, you know, how does that fit with how you feel it of your values and your alignment? And and just keep a tab on it because if it starts to feel like there's a red flag starting to come up, that's when you might start to talk to the studio and say, I'm not happy about how things are going. And if they just get rid of you, then, you know, that's creating space for you to move on to something that's more aligned. 
Um, but I know that there's there sometimes can be quite a lot of fear about even trying to get into the industry um, and making making it work, um, which unfortunately means there can be some businesses that can slightly abuse that um, when it comes to teachers. And I mean, it amazes me that when I first taught in London 20 years ago, the pay was not that much less than it is now. I know. And other jobs have inflation, but like there are some studios that are teaching worse than they taught and they paid. Sorry, there's some studios paying less than they were 20 years ago. But what they say is, oh, but it's okay because we give you a commission on filling the room to, you know, 50 people and um, and you can get five hours of teaching back to back. It's like, really? (laughs) I mean, you know, some people might love that, but it's a very exhausting um, way of working. It's as a teacher, you need to know what's aligned to you and really try and stick to that when you're negotiating, going into to doing work in studios. And the same I would say is, is when you're thinking about your terms with your clients, like, you know, be really clear about what you do as a, as a private teacher. If you're running your own studio, your own classes or you're doing privates, like you need to be really clear about what kind of clients you want and how you're going to work with those clients. And then it's up to you to stand in that and not let your clients push you around because some clients will push you around, (laughs) right? Yeah. And it's very easy to go, oh, yeah, it's okay. You don't need to pay me or, you know, or whatever it is that the client's pushing for. And you've, you've got to be able to learn to stand your ground in that as much as you do in the studio. So a lot of this is is that, that kind of piece of self-worth that connects into our integrity and how we then act as teachers and hold our space. That is so helpful. Um, <laughs> I feel like this is this is a conversation that every yoga teacher out there needs to, needs to hear. Um, so just to be like transparent, one of the barriers for me implementing more sort of, I guess, you know, an easy way to say it is like professionalism in terms of the documents that I have with um, clients or with studios or whatever, um, is firstly, like a, a lack of understanding about what I'm doing. So like, I think there's quite a few, you've put out quite a few amazing YouTube videos about like the type of documents that you need to have. And, um, like even just on your website, for example. So I think if people are struggling with that barrier, um, your YouTube channel, which we'll mention at the end, like how to actually find, I think it's just your channel spirit law. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, cool. So if people are like right now multitasking, listening and YouTubing, then go to that one. But um, so I think that was like for me a big barrier. Like I just didn't even know where to start. So like I had no um, education or awareness of what I was missing. So that was one piece. But then the second piece was like financial in terms of like everyone knows that working with a lawyer can be very expensive. Um, So it's kind of like all just too hard. But then there's this like in-between thing, which I'm using um, some templates in my um, contracting that I do. So I um, consult with yoga teachers and I have the yoga teachers sign a contract that is a template that I sort of adjust. Um, But I've kind of wondered about templates and like, are they good to be using? And like, how do you know when you can use a template or like make your own document versus when you need to actually hire a professional? 
So, I mean, the secret is that most lawyers use templates. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, um, there, there are certain lawyers that make money out of drafting templates that are put up on um, various legal directory services that then lawyers will make use of. And the key... So, you know, and, and what those templates will often do is they'll put in kind of core provisions that are deemed, and that's very loyally of me to say, that are deemed essential mm-hmm. in a contract. Um, but they're, they're considered, you know, kind of core terms you want to have in a contract because, you know, a lot of cases have happened because of tiny slip-ups. So, um, but effectively you know, I, I sit on two fences, the lawyer in me and the way that I tend to want to draft my own stuff is the loyally side of me that will over word things and and be quite specific and be like, oh, no, I must have that clause in or I can't bring myself to miss it off. Um, but at the <laughs> end of the day, um, there's a lot of that stuff, you know, that a lawyer is going to tell you you need to have and that would be in a template and you might not really know why it's there. Um, and to an extent, and we were talking about this before the recording, um, my my view is that you need to know and understand what you're writing in your documents. So templates are fine to start with. And this is what I would say as a lawyer is what we tend to do is we take a template and then we edit it to the purpose we want. So you try and find a template that's close to what it is you're trying to achieve. And then you sit and put it into your own words and you would tailor it to your circumstances and that's kind of what I'm trying to encourage with the templates that I'm designing is for people not to look at it as this is just what I just fill out and it's done but actually like be like do I actually understand this paragraph or these two sentences and if I don't I need to either and like find out what it's supposed to mean and why it's there or I should take it out because otherwise you've got words that you don't know what the impact of them is. And that's the danger with a template is you've got words that you don't know what's going to be the result of having those words in there. That doesn't mean that it's it's not a good idea to use a template. I totally and utterly say use a template, understand that it's not approved by a lawyer because as I was saying earlier on, like every word by a Every word that's in a contract will probably have some legal definition at some court somewhere in the world, and all of those courts will have a different interpretation of what that definition means. So your word choice, you need to understand. And if you're wanting to be really clear that you have a specific meaning about a word that you've chosen, you make a definition of it and you stick that in your contract. So that's the first thing to say is like, if you want to use certain words, define them. And you can just, you know, put little apostrophe marks around your word, and then you write a little means blah, 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 and you describe whatever that word's going to mean. And you'll see that a lot in contracts. And that's a really good way of being really clear about certain wording that you're using. And then you use your wording into the document. When it comes to regulated terminology, like with privacy law, there are defined terms in statute, and you can just use those. And so templates for those kind of things will often have that definition in. So it's it's in some ways that can be quite easy and the same like some laws like um, intellectual property often it will have you know copyright is defined as and you can just say copyright under my local law so that's a useful thing the other thing is to with templates is to always ensure that it's to your local law so um, and and this is where it's difficult in terms of finding lawyers because you need to 
have someone, you know, locally who understands the business and all of that stuff, which is where it all becomes very cumbersome. So the key is just to find out what your own laws are and try and get a sense of them. And some governments do do some quite good explanations around um, consumer law and privacy laws. Like there can often be quite good resources online from your local government um, that will help explain some of those principles that you would want to have in your templates. Um, if your deal is going to be quite complicated, if you're negotiating, buying a studio and leases and all of those kind of things, then you probably want to be paying for a lawyer to help you go through that paperwork. So I, when when it comes to hiring a lawyer is what's your comfort in terms of how much it could cost you if you don't understand what you've signed? Like how much money, how much time and energy do you have to lose if you if it's a mess up, basically, is normally the question I would say. <laughs> Because um, getting it looked at up front will often save you a lot of that time and money later on. Yeah, I can attest to that. Um, <laughs> you know, like hundreds of dollars spent up front would have saved me thousands of dollars in the in the long run, um, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, so, in terms of like actually working with a lawyer, like you know, I think and myself included, I became a yoga teacher when I was twenty three. And I just finished university and hadn't worked in the corporate world or anything like that. And I think, well, I know that when I became a yoga teacher, I was very naive to the fact that being a yoga teacher meant that I would also be a business owner, whether that was self-employed just as a sole trader or whether I would be, um, you know, running different businesses where I employed people as well. So I think for, for a lot of us, we don't necessarily, um, have a business background. I think that's pretty fair to say. We're mostly like yoga teachers who are trying to do the business thing in order to sustain ourselves or to put some sort of like creative work out into the world or to serve um, people. So I didn't have any background or education on like even how to work with an accountant or, um, you know, certain things that people who maybe have a business background might be more aware of the types of like relationships that they need to cultivate in order to have a successful and um, sustainable and, you know, lower the risk in their business. So in terms of like working with a lawyer or like, you know, air quotes, like having a lawyer, how does someone who's a yoga teacher even go about trying to find someone who they could talk to or build a relationship with in in that realm yeah it's tricky so um you know I can say that it's I'm sure the approach I would say is it's no different from if you're buying a house or if you're getting into some other legal scenario that happens in our daily lives right you have to find a lawyer at some point to help you with signing your documents and your paperwork and um, the first thing that's normally recommended is to go to your local, whatever lawyer regulatory authority it would be, so whether it's a solicitor's regulatory authority or it's called something slightly different if you're in the US. So you, you want to know like what's your local list of lawyers and then you want to be looking at people who specialize in like commerce and business and contracts um, because you're, you're working in a commercial environment and it's a con you, you've got consumer protection concerns because you are business to consumer facing businesses so you're looking for somebody who who can at least even understand business to consumer 
commercial business. They may, that doesn't mean that they may understand a yoga teacher and what a yoga teacher does. Um, so that would be a way of finding a lawyer. And um, often you can have libraries and other state services that do small business groups as well. So looking at um, government run services that do small business advice, um, often they can have um, either some free sessions or or people that they recommend that you reach out to that you can get either cheap or free legal advice for being a small business owner. So the key is to look for people that specialize in small businesses. And obviously, if you're growing, then you start to look at at a commercial lawyer for something a bit bigger. If you're doing commercial lease, because you're hiring a venue for a studio, then you want to look for somebody who works with commercial leases um, and renting of properties. So the problem with lawyers is often they specialize in a certain area and it doesn't mean that their knowledge will transfer across to the whole of your business. Um, And they can sometimes live in a little bit of a vacuum of the world um, and, and getting them to understand your realities and what it's like to be a small business owner may be quite hard. So the most important thing is to empower yourself with as much knowledge as you can around your legal rights and responsibilities before you go to the lawyer because then it will help you focus on what questions you need to find out from them and be able to explain to them what your business is in a concise manner and what your issues you think are they may be able to tell you there's other issues lawyers will often also go into a lot of detail and might be asking you to do a lot more than you could probably get away with if that's a really cheeky way of saying it like you know look I'm a small business owner there's so much that I'm going to do and then I'm going to be like oh whatever the risk is not high enough like I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take it on the chin and I'll deal with it if it's going to be a problem right you know as yoga teachers hopefully we know how to have good relationships with people (laughs) Um, and if things do go wrong there's an aspect to which we can try and work through stuff um so you kind of it's always going to be up to you as a small business owner as to how much of the lawyer's advice you take um, and put into practice but you want to be as knowledgeable in a way before you instruct a lawyer because most of them charge an hourly rate so they'll be really expensive and they will take a lot of time to understand your business if they understand it um so it's about you going in being really proactive and the the traditional language we use in lawyers is you upward manage a lawyer. (laughs) So you know what you want and what you're looking for. And then you go in and you kind of go, so this is my problem. This is my business. And I would like to know what of the following outcomes will work for me. And that's how to keep your instructions for a lawyer concise and not have them charge you loads of money. Yeah, that sounds, that's, it's nice to even have a term because it's like, it is kind of overwhelming of like just going in and being like, where do I start? So if you're sort of educated and empowered first, it makes the whole thing seem a lot more manageable. But like, do you have any advice on like how to get educated and empowered? Like, like, do you just like put Google terms in like what documents do I need to have in my small business or, you know, Go to local government sites. That's one of the best things to do. Local government sites can be really useful for, you know, like you're a small business. So what do I need as a small business? What do I need to start up? And then think about the activities that you're doing. So you're providing a service unless you start selling yoga mats. So you want to look at the services. So, you know, on a local government site, it'll be small businesses for services. And then maybe you might 
find that they've got a category for health-related services. So maybe you want to have a little look at that. It might be quite specific for people who are kind of more qualified in specific health-related fields, but it can be quite useful to get a sense of that. Um, you know, have a look at maybe what they suggest for things like gyms and um, the fitness industry as well. So like, you know, because we fit between. Um, so, you know, looking at what those recommendations are, and that's going to give you some clarity over what things they're going to recommend you need to be thinking about. So what laws are going to be relevant to your business, like consumer protection law, the privacy laws, how to kind of any things like cookie compliance on your website, if you've got a website, um, things like leases and negotiating leases if you're going to be getting into physical venues. And then they might have something around intellectual property as well. Cool. Um, so I have a, a question that is kind of like a personal question, but I think there will be somebody listening who will have this question too. If even that seems overwhelming, <laughs> um, would like would working with someone like you, for example, like hiring a consultant, because I know you're not practicing as a lawyer right now, but like hiring a consultant to like take a look at your business and say, hey, these are the areas that I think you need to focus on. Like, is that an option? And I'm not even sure if that's what you do. Yeah, so there, I mean, and there are other people like me who with a degree of a legal background who would be able to look at your business and kind of so, and I guess that's what I mostly do with my clients. So my clients will come to me and they'll say, I have this plan um, of things that I'm going to do. Like, how does that work? What's my IP issues? Um, you know, what, um, how would I maybe value that? How would I negotiate that? So it depends obviously on what's happening. So say if they've got a big, a big project that looks like it's got scope to become um, rolled out as a big training program you know and then we what we'll do is we'll look at kind of okay what are the options what's the pricing model how much time are you spending what's the content going to be um, okay what do you want to have in the contract you know what do you want to own in terms of your intellectual property what would you want to make money from if they did the following scenarios what's what's your view like where do you want to sit in each of the options that could come up so we do a lot of that um, I also work with people who are often come to me with their own contracts and um, maybe we just need to learn a little bit more about some of the terminology that they're using, some of the rights that they're talking about so that they can be a little bit clearer about what they're negotiating. Um, and then it's up to them if they feel that it's something that's risky enough that they want to then also get a lawyer to look at it as well as that, as well as just understanding that background. Um, I am in the process of trying to put together um, some online training so that it would go through kind of the different legal principles depending on what you're doing in your business because I think it can be so overwhelming to just have legal constructs um, when we can't apply it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, you know, we're in business and law can, the reason why lawyers can become a little bit um, disconnected from the world is because it's a very abstract, it's actually a very vata uh, quality as well yeah. as yoga ironically so um it's it's just as often its own little space place as yoga teachers can be and so what we're trying to do is bring them both into uh, commercial reality where our clients sit right um so what we're trying to do is is give you that knowledge and information so that then you could be like okay so this is my model and that's the legal issues that are involved and I'm really concerned about what I'm going to do so I'm going to go and now get what I've done, take everything I've done and give that to a lawyer. 
Um, just because then you, the more you've got, the easier it's going to be for you to be really concise about exactly what you would want a lawyer to look at if you do want them to, or if you're willing to take that risk on yourself. And remember, sometimes some things also come down to insurance um, and what your insurers will cover you for on some of your activities. Yeah. And it's um, like, as I'm listening to you, it's, it's almost kind of like, you know, if you go to the doctor and I think yoga teachers perhaps are a bit more, um, this is, this is a generalization, but like a bit more um, educated in terms of health, you would think. So it's like, I would never go to the doctor without having done like shitloads of my own research and, you know, talking to friends who know a little bit more about that particular area. And then if I needed to go to the doctor still, because the issue was still um, present, or I just wanted to get some testing done, I would go in educated already. And I, I would never dream of going to the doctor being like, you know, I feel a little bit funny. Could you help me figure out what's going on? Because I just feel like you you don't know what kind of doctor you're going to get. You're not sure what their views of things are or what their specialties are. If you're just going to like a regular GP or how much education they've had around a particular topic. So I can see that um, doing that sort of background research and education yourself would be really empowering anyway about the law and the legal matters that you need to be aware of as a business owner, but it would also probably help you have a, an outcome that you feel more like, obviously you understand it more, but you're also more aligned with it. Like I was, I remember when I was working with a lawyer last year, um, so a very lovely human being, but wasn't sort of aware of like the online side of things. And, and a lot of my business is online and like really specifically about social media and like part, like part of my non-compete that I have with and the social media thing that I'm doing. So I was like, how does this interact and blah, blah, blah. And you know, what's okay to do and what's not okay to do. So I think if, if I was a bit more educated going in, it would have helped us, you know, yeah. Cause you've got to together. think like a lot of the time you're, you know, unfortunately, a lot of lawyers don't, they, they will try and spend some time getting to know their clients, but they don't spend a lot of time getting to know their clients. They, the legal industry has a very archaic pay system, which is a pay per six minute unit effectively. Whoa. So you get charged an hourly rate <laughs> and a lawyer's day is divided by six minute units. And wow. that's, they, their salary is basically dependent on them billing a certain number of units a year. And that's how their career develops. And it's, an, it's a very, very stressful way of having your time yeah. um, managed um, <laughs> and, and paid for. But it also, unfortunately, tends to lean towards not really enough time for them to actually just learn about your business and learn about all of those extra things that might be going on in the background of your business. And I think because I worked in house so long, I and I then I did do a stint in private practice, and I could see that disconnect of how it just wasn't in their interests when they were timing in that way to really know their clients. And so you have to understand like that's just not the way the business is set up. And so you have to have all that information so that you can really maximize, you know, those six minute units <laughs> that you're paying for. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, just like you saying, I, I remember sitting in uh, with a client once and the barrister, because it was something that had to go to court and the barrister, you know, we were like, okay, so this is the online service. 
and and you know everyone in the world has signed up to it and he's like um well no I've not done because it's it, it concerns me for privacy reasons you know and, and we were like doing a privacy law case and you know we sat there kind of going you are talking about privacy law and yet you you've never even touched the technology yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and to be fair as a lawyer it's perfectly possible to do your job as a lawyer and not have to play with the tech um, and not understand and never do yoga and not be a part of the industry because it's the abstract concepts that we're applying to a problem to resolve a solution. It's a very abstract business. It's not grounded in the reality of what's going on. And that is where it can be very unsatisfying um, going to lawyers and asking them to help you and why it can be very hard to feel like you're paying a lot of money to really get value. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't some amazing lawyers out there if you're lucky and you just find someone <laughs> that totally vibes with what you do. Um, just like you said with your accountant, finding someone who gets your business. Um, you know, it can be a process of trial and error sometimes. And depending on where you live also you know you might not have lawyers who are very specialist if you're in quite a remote place they might be quite just like life generalist lawyers and therefore they don't really have a specialist niche to help you either um so it's it's not always easy knowing how to find the right lawyer but I think that the key is you having as much knowledge as you can about your business and your responsibilities and where your issues are and where you feel there might be a blind spot in your business that you might need to be looking into a bit more to reduce that risk. Yeah, that's really helpful. And even like, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian, but I live in Australia and I have done so since 2011. So I went through the process of getting permanent residency here, which is, I know something that you're doing as well. Um, and my, in my visa, one of the, the stages of my visa was actually rejected and I had to get a lawyer to help me fight that process. And I actually had two lawyers because the first one I went to, he said, eh, I don't really think you've got a very strong case, but was happy to like, uh, take my money. Yeah. <laughs> and, but then I was like, oh, wait a minute, that's, you're not confident in this. I don't feel confident in you or the case now. And so I got a different lawyer um, and she just, she smashed it out straight away. And, you know, it was, it was great. So I think there, there is like a, a degree of shopping around. And unfortunately, sometimes it's expensive. Like I still had to pay the first lawyer. Um, but it, it, it is like, it's not like if you go to one lawyer, it's all the same. Um, and like finding my accountant, um, he's so great. I used to give out his name, but I don't anymore because I've referred so many people to him. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to tell him to tell me he's too busy anymore. Um, but like, you do kind of have to play the long game I've found. And it's like finding any sort of professional that you work with, like even like my hairdresser, like how many hairdressers have I gone to, to get my fringe cut? And then finally found one that's like, oh, she she gets me. She gets me. She gets a good um, fringe. <laughs> she does a good fringe. I'm not telling anyone her name. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I think there there was that process for me finding an accountant, and I'm and I think I'm probably in that same same process finding a lawyer as well. Um, I know that you know you're not practicing, and you you can't give specific advice out, so I won't ask for that, but. I know that like everyone listening, most of the people listening will at least have a website. So this is something that like I know that I need to address in my business because I, I haven't really even thought about these things. But like just the fact that you have a website means you have to have certain 
um, statements or documents or procedures in place? Would you mind even just like the tiniest bit, like unpacking what needs to happen even just for a website? So the first thing just to say, even for a website, the laws are different in different countries, right? So just because... um, just because one country says you have to have a certain process on your website doesn't mean that another country doesn't. And of course, it's the World Wide Web, right? So it's like, and then maybe your site is actually hosted by a platform in another country. So it's incredibly confusing, okay? So, um, and and I guess the reason why, in a way, my non-practicing of law anymore means that I take a very kind of global view of what we should do to be as good practice okay so I tried to look at what we do in different countries so I've looked at in Canada and Europe and Australia and the the States um, and New Zealand and and kind of what I've tried to do is my approach is a is a high quality approach so it might be more than what you really are required to do but it also could fall short of certain countries if you don't do more does that make sense so um I'm trying to share like what I see as being a good practice as what we do being sole traders potentially um, and not really having a ton of time. Um, but I think it, on t- on a website, it's good practice um, to have your privacy policy if you're collecting emails, say. So as soon as you start collecting data from people with the contact form, you're collecting someone's email and name, you need to have a privacy policy which says, I'm collecting your personal data, this is why I collect it, this is what I'm going to do with it, these are the purposes, you have these rights in terms of what I do with your personal data, and you can, this is how you contact me to find out what data I've got on you. And that's what your privacy policy is there for, is to explain what you're doing with someone's personal data. And this is a regulated area, most countries, would require that you have that for doing any kind of collection of data. Um, you need that even if you, hopefully if you've got clients and you don't have a website, you still need to have a privacy policy. Um, but you want to have that up on your website because you probably have a contact form and you maybe have a subscribe button for an email list. So that's the... So this is kind of thing. random, but like, is your privacy policy a statement that is like just embedded onto your website that people can read before they sign up or does it need to be at a, in a particular place or anything like that? No, you can stick it in the footer of your site. Normally, normally these kind of things are put in the footer of your site. So it's across on every page um, and it's easy for people to link and see. Um, if you, um, if you're working with European citizens, there are some quite strict rules and it's quite useful to have a link um to your privacy policy or mention your privacy policy so that people know before they do say sign up to your email list and start to give you that data um and when it comes to mailing lists it's good to have double opt-ins as well so that people you know can get the email saying confirm subscription to your emails just just to show that they really have meant to sign up to you um it's just better practice um so that would be the first kind of core thing. As soon as you're collecting client data, that's regardless of a website, right? Just teaching classes in a, in a field even, you need a privacy policy. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So, I mean, that that's just given, but you want to stick it on your website because you're probably going to be trying to collect data. Um, in terms of collecting data on your site, you probably are using cookies. Most um, 
website hosts use cookies to help monitor and track people across the web and across your site. So they will be some cookies that are necessary to help the website work in terms of following a client around your site and getting them to the right pages, um, especially if you're offering to sell something on your website. Um, and then you might have marketing cookies where you're trying to um, track people to and from social media or a landing page or whatever campaign you're running to get people to look at your website for whatever purpose you're trying to push. And cookies are like little files that get dropped onto our device um, on your phone just as much as your computer, so it's not restricted. Um, and they are what help the internet serve you with the thing that you're most interested in. So, you know, that creepy moment where you yeah. thought no one was looking, <laughs> that you were looking at something to buy for someone's birthday and then it appears suddenly right on your Facebook feed um it's it's that and those are cookies and so you just want to have a little cookie policy saying what cookies you're using on your site um some countries that's very much a key requirement you have to have it and you have to get active consent from people for the fact that you've got cookies following them around for marketing activity other countries don't mind so it's just good to have a statement um, and you can do them as like little pop-up bars you often see them on sites nowadays saying you know there are cookies on this site click here to see the cookie policy um, and you can go to a site called cookiebot.com there are some other ones as well but they will cookiebot.com I just quite like the presentation they send you a pdf of what cookies you've got on your site and they'll do that every month oh. Um, cool. And then you can just see like whatever it is that your host, your your website host is doing. And also Google Analytics uses cookies. So, you know, if you're using Google Analytics, which hopefully you are for your marketing, um, you know, you're, you're going to need to be putting that into your cookie policy. So it's just being really clear and upfront about how you're tracking cool. people on the site. You might want to have website terms of use um, to protect your content on your site. So that would be, say, you know, people on the site. It's for general information purposes. If you're talking in blog posts about various health concerns, obviously disclaiming that anything in a blog post is anything more than educational purposes and information, um, that you don't want people to take your photos or your text um, or your videos and infringe your intellectual property rights. Um, so not having people take your content off your site um, and that you don't want people to be trying to hack or put viruses into your site um, or... Um, doing spamming through your contact form or or any email address links or anything like that. So just having those kind of those terms of what people do on your website. You can also, if you're doing other activity on your website, say affiliate marketing, you'll want to put in something about the fact that you do links to affiliate marketing where you make money. Um, and if you have user generated content like comments on a blog post, you want to be putting in some rules around how people post and what they can say and your right to remove that. So, you know, there's there's extra layers we can add into those website terms depending on how flashy and what activity you're doing on your website. You also might want to have some disclaimers. So if, say, you are doing affiliate marketing, you're going to have a disclaimer saying, I'm making money out of you clicking on this link and buying something. So that, that you need to you need to disclaim. And those kind of things can be pretty heavily regulated, especially in the world of influencers. It's become a much bigger issue for um, advertising regulators and fair trade regulations in the States. Um, they do clamp down quite heavily if they catch people doing it, um, doing even social media posts without saying that you're being paid or if you're being sponsored to do stuff. So sponsorship 
and affiliate links are definitely ones that you want to be really quite clear that you're being paid that you're doing those yeah well you see that now it's like paid paid partnership with um you know whoever i think that's it's actually really helpful because it's nice to know if the person is recommending it because they genuinely love the thing and use it or if they're also um receiving money for that it's helpful as a consumer i think yes yes and this is part of what i was saying earlier on about protecting you know the relationships are about protecting people in a more vulnerable position and when you're selling stuff but in a way that looks as though it's a part of your life. And I think with wellness, um, unless you have a clear studio brand, um, if you're a sole trader selling your business, you know, maybe through your name and your social media is through your name and your website, it can sometimes get quite blurred around what we're talking about for our personal lives and what's our business. Oh, there's so much more that I would love to speak with you about, Um, but I'm just aware of the time and I know you've got a commitment coming up. So I just wanted to throw it out there. If there's anything that you feel like we didn't wrap up or that like loose threads that are still sort of hanging that you want to address before we start to wrap things up. I think the biggest thing for me is trying to be clear that like, although it can seem really overwhelming, the amount of potential legal stuff there is that you need to learn about as a small business just take it one step at a time so you know what is the current activity that you're doing and what is it that's relevant to that thing and then the next one and is there something relevant does it change what you've done before so it's you know it's I've talked about it in learning technology right is that when we're learning new technology it's a very rational process of step a um step b and then oh hang on a minute b doesn't work with a so i need to go back to a and like try the other variable with a before like you know and it it just sometimes we have to go step by it's very step by step dependent on your scenario but sometimes you have to revise a prior step because your new step slightly changes it so you know don't think that just because you've done the documents they're done and dead (laughs) They're, they're living documents because they are a reflection of our relationships if you're changing your relationships you're changing your activity and how you work with people then you need to be thinking about how does that change my terms that I've written yeah and and making it as a reflection of you and how you're acting and working um as your yoga business um rather than just thinking that you know it can become dusty on the shelf which is very tempting I know because <laughs> we only yeah, have so and, much time right and we're just trying to make uh, money and get people through the door I know <laughs> it's like so much bandwidth but I mean and for me what has helped in any of this is having someone who I can like having a professional who this is their life and their understanding of it and so that I can work with someone so it's not just all on my own shoulders. And even though it's it's challenging as a small business because often like you're choosing where your finances go, um, you know, whether it's to paying this employee or to, you know, buying a new piece of equipment that you need or um, upgrading your laptop or whatever. Uh, I know funds aren't readily available all the time, but it is something that I found like having people who um, sort of live and breathe this stuff like on your side and on your team, it actually just makes the whole process a lot more manageable. Yeah, and it can give you, it, I'd say a lot of it when I talk to people is it's about peace of mind that you've just had someone to go through stuff with, you know, and that you've just thought it through and you've gone through the process and you're happy with the decision you've made. You know, as I said earlier on, like we're small, 
technically, you know, how big is the risk? Well, I guess it just depends on like how risky you are as a teacher, right? Like <laughs> It just depends how many risks you want to take and what your comfort of your risk appetite is. And having what I would always say when I worked in-house and I would say it's, it's no different running your own business is it's just risk awareness, right? So we just need to know what risks are there and what's my risk appetite and how, how and what am I willing to do to keep my risk appetite happy and balance the, the stuff that I need to do. And that way then you just hopefully find a healthy midpoint where you can feel like you have that peace of mind that you've done all that you need that you're content with to, to kind of move on and do your other stuff. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, Nid, before we wrap up, could you finish this sentence? If you really knew me, you would know. I bet I'm mad and a bit crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that answer. (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) No other explanation needed. Um, I think that I think that it's nice to be open about that. I once told someone that I was crazy in a good way on an airplane and he didn't speak to me the entire time. It was just like the person sitting next to me. Um, but yeah, so I, I get it. Yeah, I think I, people often tell me not to say it and I'm like, why not? I don't mind. <laughs> yeah. doesn't bother me. No, and you, you just, you just, you just got to own it, I think. Um, hey, Nid, I know you, you're in the process of like putting out a whole lot of information right now um, and you've got a website and a YouTube channel and all of that sort of stuff. Could you just tell people how to find you? Yeah, so the website is spiritlaw.net. Um, and at the moment that's got kind of links to the YouTube channel and it's got a mailing list sign up, um, which I'm not doing any emails, um, <laughs> at the moment, I'm just going to use it to probably send out the first trial, um, offer for the online program that I'm putting together, which will be training around these different legal principles and different parts of our business. Um, and that will be the way in which I'm going to send out that test round. So if you're interested in that program, that's the place to sign up for that. And the YouTube videos, I try my best to get them out every week. Can't promise. Um, And I'm trying to use, um, obviously, what people are saying are current needs um, and focus on those in my videos. So they're very trying to be very current um, with what's going on in the industry. Um, And other than that, I am doing some talks for Yoga Australia on their webinar series. So keep an eye out with Yoga Australia as well for those as bonus time um, because you get access to those videos and the content if you're a Yoga Australia member as well. So that's that's the other thing that I've been doing um, in terms of free free stuff. Cool. Um, Thank you so much. I am so happy that you came on and sort of had this like I wrote down my title for this episode is like yoga teacher. Do you need a lawyer? <laughs> uh, like just like basically like an introduction to some of the things that we need to think about um, as soul traders and, and business people. So I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Nid. You're welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure and I'm happy to support your community in any way possible. Thanks for listening to another episode of Teaching Yoga. To get full transcripts and links for all of the resources we discuss in this show, get yourself on the newsletter at corajaru.com slash newsletter. That's C-O-R-A-G-E-R-O-U-X dot com slash newsletter. You know.
gon' keep it real and you go somewhere but here Cause you know we're only losing control just for a minute oh. If you don't like this music then don't be listening to it You know I'm just a dude that you know or something similar If you don't keep it real can you go somewhere but here Cause you know we're only losing control just for a minute oh. Uh-oh. 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 U